How's everyone doing? It's good to be with you. My name's Daniel. I have the privilege of preaching this morning. I serve as one of the elders here at the Mountain Church. And we're continuing our study through the book of 1 Samuel. Last week, our brother Will opened our study by looking at uh, the first chapter all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. And this section described the opening uh, and the beginning of the birth of Samuel. It described how there was a woman named Hannah who was in great distress. She was being tormented by uh, the, the other wife of Elkanah, who uh, she couldn't have kids, and, and the other wife could, so she was in distress. And she came to the Lord asking and plea, pleading with him, pouring out her heart before the Lord that, that she would get a son and that she would dedicate him to the Lord. The Lord grants Hannah her request, and she conceives and bears a son. And the end of uh, our passage last week, the, the beginning of chapter 2, we looked at that great prayer that Hannah prays, praising God, thanking him uh, for his great holiness and power and sovereignty, proclaiming his, his power. And last week, uh, these, this section, the, and really this section as well, the first two chapters of Samuel introduce key themes that we'll see all throughout the book. God's sovereignty, God's power, uh, the fact that God exalts the humble, but he brings low and humbles the proud. This is what Hannah's prayer included, included a warning. She said in verse 3, of chapter 2, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. The Lord is judge. He brings low and he exalts. Right? And last week we saw the outworking of that in the Lord granting the request to Hannah. She is humble and in need, and the Lord hears her cry, grants her request, and she conceives and bears forth a son named Samuel. And this week, we see the other outworking of that prayer, that not only the Lord exalts the humble, but he humbles those who are proud. So that's what we're, we're seeing, the, the other outworking of that passage here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 through 36. And that's where we're going to pick up the story where we left off last week. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. What I'd like to do in our time together this morning is uh, read through the text and provide some brief commentary to hopefully give some a greater understanding to the meaning of the text. And then we'll answer those three questions that were introduced last week, uh, the questions that you'll find in your handout that help us make sense of, of the passage. Uh, the first question helps us to see what truth about this passage do, does, does God highlighting for us, what attribute of his character or what is the relationship between God and his people that this passage shows. The second question is, how does this story connect to the larger story of the Bible or the meta narrative? And the third question is gearing at, what does this passage have in regard to a warning or an exhortation? Something to do or not to do. So everyone there in 1 Samuel with me? All right, let's dive in. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And what this verse does, it provides a transition from the story of Hannah and her husband and their family to the family of Eli. Samuel at this point has already been weaned. He's already been given to the Lord. Uh, his upbringing now is given to the responsibility of Eli. And this verse opens and introduces what we'll see a series of comparing and contrasting between Samuel and Eli's sons. So uh, the very next verse, in fact, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
Some translations might use the word instead of worthless, scoundrels. Literally, the word means uh, sons of Belial, which is sons of wickedness, sons of the worthless ones. It was a figure of speech used to talk about character of wicked men and, and troublemakers, people who do evil. And in this way, uh, it also has implications about the father, Eli, which we will see uh, in, in a little bit. Verse 13, the custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, if you, if you didn't know the, the practice or what the law had described in the Torah, you would think, hey, this is, maybe this is the way that the priests survived. They got their food. They would just stick this fork into the, the animal and get you know, whatever they had. That would be what they would live on. But this is in direct contradiction to what God had written in the law of Moses. The priest, there were provisions provided for the priests. There were ways in which God had listed out. These are specific ways in which the priests will eat but it was not sticking a three-pronged fork into a pot and pulling out whatever you got. This seems to be a way that the priests were trying to get more for themselves. The priests, uh, in, in, according to Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 7, they were to get uh, the right thigh and the breast of an animal sacrifice. Right? Or other, other portions talk about uh, the, the guts or the stomach, as, as Deuteronomy says, but Leviticus 7 describes that they were to get the right thigh and the breast of an animal. They weren't just supposed to jab this fork into whatever they got it and pull it out, okay? So that's, that's a, a no-no. And this was happening at Shiloh, which would have been the religious center of the Israelites. This is where the tabernacle was set up. So this is, this is not a good thing that's happening. This shows how far the people have slid and how corrupt they had become. Then it says in verse 15, moreover, so not only that, there's more. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Again, this was in, con this was in direct contradiction to what God had listed out in his, in his law. Uh, the fat portion was regarded and thought of to be as the best portion. That was the portion that was to be dedicated and burned to the Lord. Leviticus 3.17 states that the Israelites were not to eat the fat or the blood. Right? So they were taking what was the Lord's portion. They were robbing from God, essentially, and taking it from themselves and, and doing this in a way that was against God's law. Leviticus 7 actually states that anyone who eats the fat was to be cut off from the people. So these were serious offenses that were happening, and it wasn't just from any Israelite, right? These were the priests, the priest servants or the priest sons that were, that were doing these things. So verse 17 says, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. If I can draw your attention back to verse 13, that word that says custom there, um, is, is the word that we get the word justice from, the root word justice. And, and this is, the narrator is kind of, I think, being a little sarcastic here. This is the justice of the priest. Robbing God, exploiting the people. This is what they were doing. 
Okay, so that kind of section wraps up, and now we're going to transition to Samuel. We'll see the transition here in verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So we see the the compare and contrast already. The sons of Eli, worthless men, exploiting the people, robbing God. Samuel, growing in the presence of the Lord, serving the Lord, ministering to the Lord. Here we see that the Lord has blessed Hannah. She serves as kind of the, the, the... receiving the wards for her faith, dedicating Samuel. The Lord blesses him with not only Samuel, but with many children. And, and outside of this compare and contrast in the story, uh, this is the last time we see Hannah and her husband. They, right, their, their kind of role in the, narr- in the narrative at this point is concluded. Uh, they've served to introduce Samuel. And from this point on, it's kind of Samuel uh, is the main focus for the good portion of what's next. We don't hear about these two again. And now we go back to Eli and his sons in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. Here's a third sin that the narrator now describes. How they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Samuel's presenting a warning, or excuse me, Eli's presenting a warning to his sons, saying, listen, someone sins against another person, God can mediate for that guilty party. He can intercede for that person. But if someone does wrong to the Lord, sins against him, who will mediate? You bear the responsibility of your actions and your sins. And he's saying, if someone continues in unrepentant sin, continually sinning against the Lord, there's wrong between God and that person. They will bear the punishment, the wrath, the weight for their wrongdoing. And notice too that the narrator said in verse 22, he kept hearing all. It wasn't just like a one-time thing. He kept hearing all. This is important as we get later into the passage. <coughs> so Eli's sons were exploiting the people. They were taking the fat portions that were reserved for the Lord. They were taking more than what they should have, and they were sleeping with people outside of the tent of meeting. Right? This shows how, just how corrupt the people of Israel had become. And, and remember last week, Will talked about how as Hannah's praying to the Lord at the entrance of the temple, Eli mistakes her for being drunk. That's what Smith showed, like, this is probably a common practice. This was not a good time for the people of Israel, and, and the priests were not doing a good job in leading the way. And then we come to this verse, or this phrase at the end of 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. We'll come back to this. Again, verse 26. So we've just talked about Eli and his sons. Now we come to Samuel. Now the Lord Samuel continued to grow in both stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. 
Some translations even use the word by contrast. The boy Samuel grew in favor with the Lord and with people. So we see here, the sons of Eli, they're on a trajectory of rebellion, punishment. Good things are not around the corner for them. Samuel's on a trajectory of growth, serving the Lord, growing in favor. The two are crossing. And then verse 27, the Lord comes to Eli and his household. Now there was a man of God, which would be another way of talking about a prophet. This was a reference to a prophet. Came to Eli and said to him, thus says, thus the Lord has said, did I reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. So notice, he's, this pro- prophet, this man of God is highlighting three things that the Lord is saying to Eli. Number one, did I not reveal myself to you? Number two, did I not choose you? Three, did I not give to you? Verse 29, why then do you scorn my sacrifices? The word scorn there literally means kick at. I did this. I provided for you. I chose you. I revealed myself to you. I gave to you, and, and you kick at me. Right? Think about it. If you gave a gift to your, to your friend, it was a nice gift. You put some thought into it. You saved up to buy it. Maybe it was, you thought it was going to be a great blessing to them. And this friend takes the gift and goes, oh, cool, and then kicks you in the face. That's not a proper response to receiving a gift. That's not honoring the one who gave you this gift. And yet this is what Eli and his sons had done to the Lord. But notice, Eli has not just scorned the sacrifice and the offerings. He's also, verse 29, why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Eli also bears responsibility and is held accountable to the actions of his sons. Eli probably would have benefited from the wickedness of his sons in doing this. He, he had the power to remove his sons from the priesthood. And this man, Eli, who was quick to accuse this a woman of being drunk, a, a word that when he calls, when, the way he calls her is similar to the way that the narrator describes the sons of Eli as worthless, yet he doesn't rebuke his own sons and remove them from this priestly office. He is held accountable. Why do you honor your sons above me? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. You have not upheld your part of the covenant. Far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall cut off, not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. All the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon you, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. 
And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and on my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I might eat a morsel of bread. Does this not sound like the warning that Hannah prayed earlier in chapter two? Those who are Fattening themselves now will go hungry. Those who are arrogant and boasting in themselves now will be humbled. And, and the prophet, the man of God, gives uh, Eli a sign that this is going to happen. Both of his sons are going to die on the same day. He instills justice and, and punishment and then promises you and your family are not faithful. You are not representing my holiness and my purity. You are leading the people in sin. I'm going to call up a faithful priest who will do as I command, who knows what's on my heart and in my mind. Now, uh, this prophecy is fulfilled about 20 chapters later when Saul massacres all the priests. Only one person uh, survives, this guy named Abiathar. He escapes, right? So this is how quickly this prophecy is fulfilled just 20 chapters later. And, and many scholars and Bible uh, commentators that I read describe that they think that this faithful priest who the Lord described is a guy named Zadok, who was established in the reign of King David, who was Israel's second king, a faithful king, a king who was a man who was described as being after the Lord's own heart. But it's kind of a uh, heavy way to end the passage, isn't it? Warning, the Lord rejecting Eli's household, death, imminent death coming. So let's look at those three questions and see if we can make sense of, of what's going on in this passage, right? There's a lot that was just described here. There's the comparing and contrasting of Hophni and Phinehas between Samuel. There's the warning of Eli to his sons. And there's the rebuke and pronounced judgment of God through this man of God upon Eli and his family. So what can we learn about God and his relationship with his people? Or what can we learn about these realities in this passage of scripture? And like mentioned earlier, I think in many ways this passage highlights the sovereignty of God and God, uh, just like last week, giving life to Hannah, his sovereign power in giving life. And this week, it shows God's sovereign power in pronouncing judgment and death. And, and God is both. He is both a God of, of promise, covenant, faithfulness, and mercy, and he is a God of wrath. And this passage shows us that God is a God of wrath. He is a righteous judge. Hannah's prayer in, in chapter 2, verse 6 says, the Lord kills and the Lord brings life. The Lord is sovereign in giving life and in punishing and killing the wicked. Now, that might not be a, a passage or idea or a thought that we put on coffee cups and cards, but this is a reality of what the Bible teaches us. This is what the text, I think, is presenting before us. Might not, it's not, might not be very popular in podcasts and in books, but the Bible is very clear that God is a God of wrath and righteous anger at sin. God lifts up the weak and the humble, and he also brings judgment upon the arrogant and the proud. Now, Hophni and Phinehas haven't died yet, but we know that the Lord's saying is his doing. What the Lord says, he will do. And this passage shows us that God is a righteous judge, a punisher of the wicked. He has wrath towards the sinner and the rebel. 
We know that God is ultimately about the display and the preservation of his glory, and he will not tolerate the belittling, the demeaning, the dishonoring of his magnificence, his worth, his holiness. Sin has to be dealt with. And in fact, I think with Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, those who were disobeying God, they were honoring themselves above God, God would be an unjust God not to deal with this, right? He would be unjust. So let's look again at at verse 25, the verse that we said we would come back to. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now notice what this verse doesn't say. Because they didn't listen to their father, the Lord decided to put them to death. Now, we might want it to say that, right? That makes us a little more comfortable. At least, I can read that and think that. The New American Standard Bible says it like this. The Lord desired to put them to death. New Living Translation says, the Lord was already planning to put them to death. This is a very clear and explicit demonstration of God's sovereignty, isn't it? And right now, if, if, if you or if we think that, that God is small and people are big, that God ultimately cares about humanity and, and self is supreme and eminent, this is extremely disorienting, isn't it? Isn't this discombobulating? You mean humanity is not at the center of God? God is at the center of God. He is completely sovereign and glorious. He does what he wants when he wants. This is very much in line with the whole of the Bible, that that God is sovereign, that he hardens the hearts of those that he wills, and he softens the hearts of those that he wills. Exodus 33, 19. This is what God tells Moses. I will be gracious upon whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This truth is echoed from the psalmist who says in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is not manipulated or mocked. He's not someone that we control and and that we can kind of tweak to get to do what we want. He's not this kind of soft kitten that we can, you know, caress and just play with the right way and then we can get him to do what he wants. God is described as a fierce lion who is to be feared. Amen? Amen. The sovereignty and the wrath of God is highlighted here. Yet, before we go too far... And I can see some of us, maybe we, we're struggling with this concept, this idea. It's, it's difficult and it's tough. God says in verse 30, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be disgraced. So we can't say, well, the Lord already decided to do what he wanted to Eli and Phineas, So they, were, they can't really be held accountable. It didn't really matter what they did. Right? We can't go to that extreme because the scriptures teach there is human responsibility that we are held accountable for our actions. So we can't go, human action and responsibility doesn't matter, but we can't go, God is ultimately about human responsibility and human choice. There's a tension that we see in this passage. So I would sum it up to say the story proclaims that God is a sovereign judge who feels wrath towards the wicked. He punishes evil. He holds his creation accountable to how they live. God is holy. He cannot tolerate evil. He will establish a faithful people and a holy people, uh, however he, he might have or planned. 
And, and this leads us right, I think, to the, the second question of how the, does this story connect to the larger story of the Bible? Right? We see here, we see God is he's punishing God. He's a promising God. We see this throughout the Bible. I think, and, and friends, I can feel, I can feel there's a weight in this room right now, isn't there? Right, we're talking about the Lord desiring to put people to death. There'd be something wrong with us if we had smiles and we we're like, yay, right? There's a weight, there's a seriousness to which we should feel in this passage. I can feel it in the room. But I think if we don't come to grips with this, God's sovereignty, his wrath, his anger towards sin, then God's grace and the cross will not be as transformative. We won't be as gripped by it. It won't be as scandalous to us. Eli's question in the story presents us with a problem. Who will stand between a man's sin and God? Sin must be punished. God's wrath must be poured out. How is that dealt with? The story shows us the need for a mediator, an intercessor. Doesn't that question, doesn't that just point us to Jesus? People need a mediator, and, and the promise and need for a faithful priest that is described here, doesn't that point us to Christ who will establish a faithful family, a faithful house to the Lord? The reality is, friends, that all of us are like Phineas, Phineas and Hophni. We are guilty sinners in the hand of a, of a just God. God's wrath and, and punishment must be poured out. But although we were deserving of death and punishment and separation and hell, it was the will of the Lord to send his son to die in our place. Right? It, the Lord desired to kill Jesus in our place. Sin must be dealt with, right? And Jesus took it on our, in our place, on our behalf. That's what's so scandalous about the gospel, isn't it? We, how can... Sinners be declared righteous when God is holy and just. The cross, because Jesus, God's wrath and justice was poured out and Jesus took it upon himself in our place as our substitute. He bore the wrath of our sin. God in his great mercy and love sent Jesus, the great high priest, as Hebrew says, the faithful Israelite to die the death that we all should have died. And it was God's will to crush him, to put him to death, so that guilty sinners could be declared righteous. And he didn't do this because any of us were worthy enough, or we had somehow earned right standing with God, or we're somehow greater than Hophni and Phinehas. It was all because of his glorious grace. It was all because of who God is and, and who has, what he has decided to do. We don't get this on our own. God reveals and elects and chooses and blesses even with what the sons of Eli did not have, a knowledge of God. They did not know the Lord. And God, the righteous judge, has revealed himself to us. He has called us by name. He has declared us innocent because of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I think if, if we come to grips with that reality of wrath and judgment and hell and we look at Jesus... There's no room for boasting and being proud, is there? That humbles us, doesn't it? That leads us to boast only in God and the cross. That leads us to seek his glory and honor and power, not ours, because he alone is, is the, the only one deserving of it. Therefore, what 
What does this passage call us to do or, or to not to do? What, what admonition or exhortation does this story offer, right? And in light of God's sovereignty and justice, his punishing of evil, his choosing of faithful priests, how this story po- points us to Jesus and the cross and our need for a mediator. I, I think the principle of God is the God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed, that God is a righteous judge and sins will be punished, number one, presents a warning to those who do not know God haven't repented and placed their faith in him. It offers a warning to repent. Turn now while you can, before it's too late. Don't let the wrath of God come upon you. Trust in Christ. He has taken the wrath. He has borne the weight of our sin upon himself. It's a clear warning, I think, in this passage. Come to Christ. Don't treat the sacrifices of, of God. with. Don't live as if you're on your own Lord and Savior. Don't live ignorant apart from God and his ways turn and come to know God. But for the church, I think it presents a warning as well. The one who believes in Jesus, the person who has placed their faith in Christ. Yes, we know that the wrath of God, if we are truly in Christ, is born in him, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that. But the passage, I think, offers a warning that even even as Hophni and Phinehas treated the Lord's sacrifice with contempt, the church can do the same thing. The church can do the same thing when we disregard Christ as, and, and live as if his, the realities of what he has accomplished don't have any bearing on our life. Right? Like if Jesus died, he came, he, he lived, he, he died in our place, and his blood covers us from our sins, and he has called us to be holy, to be like him, to be transformed into his image, and that's not reflected in our life. We are scorning the sacrifice of Jesus. We are treating the blood of Jesus like it's nothing. It doesn't really, it's not powerful or transformative. In fact, this is what the writer of, of 1 Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See what the see what the what Peter is saying to us? We were bought with the most precious thing, Jesus' own blood. And if we live and act and not strive for holiness, we don't seek to conform our life and in every way and strive towards holiness and becoming like God, we are treating the blood with contempt. We are kicking at the blood. We are scorning the blood. I think that's a real warning. So church, we have been ransomed from our sin, amen? Amen. We can read a passage like this and praise God for his grace and his mercy. That although we, like Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, are worthy of judgment and death and separation, cut off forever, Jesus was cut off so that we would be brought in. Jesus was dishonored so that we would be honored. Jesus was condemned so that we would be forgiven. But in light of that, let us not take this lightly 
as if Jesus' blood is like, oh, sweet, now I can just do what I want. No, there is a, a holiness, a calling that God has called us to, and, and we are liable of treating that blood with contempt and that cross with contempt when we don't seek to strive and become like Christ and grow in holiness. Let's fix our eyes on the cross and consider ourselves, as Paul writes to the Romans, dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. Let us confront our sin and strive continually towards the goal of holiness and becoming more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son Jesus, who was treated with contempt so that we could be treated with honor. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to suffer and to be punished in our place. Father, by your grace and by your power of the Spirit, I pray that we might not scorn the greatest sacrifice in Jesus Christ by treating our sin lightly. May we not deceive ourselves or be liars in claiming to be people that we are not. May we continue to live, not continue to live in sin and and live like we did before you called us and saved us. Father, we want you to be glorified in our life. We want Jesus to be lifted up. And Father, may you be glorified in us as we increasingly reflect your holiness to the world. Father, may we be glorified as we change and are sanctified by your Holy Spirit to be your ambassadors. Father, may we humbly and prayerfully mature into holiness, killing our sin and continually humbling ourselves before you. Father, thank you for raising up a faithful high priest who did all that was according to your mind and and on your heart. We thank you for establishing a forever family uh, that we can be adopted by your son, Jesus. And Father, we want to be in your presence forever. We ask that your kingdom would come now, that your will would be done on earth as is in heaven. Father, be glorified and magnified in your life. We ask that you would do this for your namesake, for your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.